Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Tonight, we're going to go into a bit more depth and a bit at a calmer pace because I'm going to be looking at only about three or four major figures that are part of our exploration of the 18th century uh, and to work out the thematics behind that we're just going to go into depth on uh, a few interesting and very very illustrative careers. Uh, As you know for those of you who haven't worked it out we're doing the 18th century. In, in In the first week we looked at some of the uh, some of the background issues to the 18th century, some of the things that are going on, and some of the great disputes. Uh, we looked at some of the personalities and the kind of issues that were arising as a result of the challenges of the Enlightenment. In the second talk, we kind of moved a little bit away from the Enlightenment, and we looked at Hasidism predominantly. We looked at a couple of other things as well, but predominantly we were looking at what was happening on the other side of the gefilte fish line. (laughs) And uh, tonight we're going to come back to uh, more Central and Western Europe and we're going to pick up the story of, uh, in some ways, the story of the Enlightenment, but it's not always what we expect or think it's going to be. So let's first of all draw our map so we know where we are. Yes, laugh away, that's right. Yes. Now, um, I'm going to, in the first, in the first half of tonight, I want to talk, if possible, if we can, if we can manage to cover this by the break, I want to talk about predominantly two individuals who are living at the same time and who have in some ways remarkably similar projects and in other ways remarkably different and their lives and their careers are parallel and they're existing in an entirely different situation. And they are both overwhelmingly important in terms of how the 18th century forms our world, our Jewish world. If we were talking about the, how the 18th century forms the non-Jewish world, then we would have to obviously have an entirely different set of 100 talks just on that. But even in the Jewish world, there are certain personalities and careers that, in a sense, are very much still with us. And so we're going to look at two people that we haven't looked at yet really in detail. And the first of those... Uh, is someone you've all heard of, but what I want to do is get to terms a little bit with who this person actually was, because, and what they wanted, and what they were trying to achieve, and what their fundamental ideas were, because you have all heard of Elijah the Gaon of Vilna, and for many of us we go, ah, Elijah the Gaon of Vilna. (laughs) Obviously, a very important person from Jewish history, 
I'm not sure when he lived, but sometime. And he was obviously living in Vilna. And everybody says he was a great rabbi. And let's move on to the next page in the comic book. All right? And, you know, Jewish history is more than just a collection of names. These people are important because they had overwhelmingly influential lives and careers. Elijah of Vilna was someone who was much more than just another great rabbi or another great genius or another great mind. He was all of those, but he was a lot more. So we need to spend some time, and particularly in relation to the second person I'm going to talk about, who has this parallel career that is just as influential in an entirely different direction, in order to set that up, we need to understand who Elijah the Gaon of Vilna was. And we did mention him last week. We mentioned him last week. We mentioned Elijah... Uh, the Gaon of Vilna, Elijah ben Solomon Zalman, the Gaon of Vilna. Some people, some historians and biographers have given him the family name Kramer, but there is some dispute about whether or not that in fact was a name that was known to him. Uh, and he's born, so his life really is smack in the middle of the 18th century because He's born in 1720, yep, and he dies in 1797. So it doesn't get much more 18th century than that. And he's born in uh, a town called Seletz, uh, which is in the, like the Grodno province, uh, and in Lithuania. So he's born into the uh, Polish-Lithuanian kingdom as a commonwealth, rather, commonwealth as it was at the time. Remember that map is going to get... Changed, And this is one of the things I'm going to refer to tonight, because really we have to remember that not only is the 18th century complex in terms of the big cholent of ideas that's happening and the big kind of mix and flow and dynamics of ideas that are constantly shifting, but even as that's happening, the physical geography is shifting. Not the physical geography, sorry, the political geography. Thank you. The political geography is shifting. Countries are being eliminated and other great powers are taking them over. There are wars and there are all sorts of treaties and negotiations and so on. The, as you all know, by the end of the 18th century, by the end of the 1700s, this thing that we've called the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth is nada nada. It doesn't exist anymore. Even certain political institutions that have been around for a couple of centuries in the Jewish world, such as the Council of the Four Lands that we spoke about in the very first talk, that won't exist anymore by the end of the 18th century. Things are being done very, very differently, and part of that has got to do with what's going on in the West and the ideas that are coming out. But Elijah, the, he's not born as Elijah the Gaon of Vilna. His name was, he didn't go around as a youngster going, Hi, I'm Elijah the Gaon of Vilna. Certainly not before the age of about 11. <laughs> now, when we talk about... Look, let me... Let, let, uh, I really, you know, like, like I said, like if we've only got four talks to cover the 18th century, I can only talk about people who are really, really important. So if I'm going to spend 15, 20 minutes on one individual, then you need to understand who this individual was. Because... <laughs> talk about an age of geniuses and uh, children who were born. You, you know, you read every few years, you read about some Korean kid that at the age of four can speak French and play the piano and all that sort of thing, right? Well, we were producing those in Europe. 
Uh, and of that entire calibre of individuals, some of whom we've looked at already, you know, you, your Lutzatos and your Eibschitzes and your Schneezalman of Liadis and these people that were brilliant from a young age, the Elijah was like that times 10 on crack. Uh, he already knew the Bible, the Tanakh, by heart. Don't go oh yet. Don't go oh yet. He knew the Bible, the Tanakh, by heart by the age of three. He gave his first complex drasha, his first sermon in the main synagogue in Vilna at the age of six and a half and took questions from the audience. By the age of eight, he was learning independently. Talmud. They took him to a teacher for a while and already by the age of eight or nine he didn't have any teachers and even by the time he got to his teachers he already knew several tractates by heart. He obviously had an eidetic memory which is like a photographic memory and he, he actually talks about that that he was able to look at a page of text and know it. But it wasn't just that. He had an unbounding intellectual drive for these things. He wasn't just a kid whose parents made him do it. He was into it. Uh, interestingly enough, he was also very, very curious. He was also, by the way, just, just as a footnote, so you don't, I, I, and, and I want you to listen carefully to some of the things I say about some of these people, because I'm going to talk about two people in the first part, and then after the break, I'm going to talk, or try to talk about someone who bridges the gap between those two. And you can see why in everything that we talk about in relation to these individuals, how that emerges as a theme in the 18th century. One of the things that Elijah was very curious about, of course, was Kabbalah. Why wouldn't you be? Uh, it was, ooh, and it was mystical. And it was like, in rabbinic circles, Kabbalah was referred to as the true science. That's where true science and wisdom is going to be found. And it has two aspects, the Kabbalah. It has a theosophical aspect, in other words, an intellectual, introspective aspect that looks at cosmology, that looks at theological issues from a mystical perspective. And then, as you know, Kabbalah also has a practical aspect where if you can master certain ideas and certain energies and certain forces, you can do interesting ooga-booga. <laughs> and already at the age of 11, Elijah is uh, playing with that idea. He writes in his own autobiographic notes, which we don't have a lot of. They were mostly written down by his students. Uh, he, at the age of 11, he decided that he would make a golem. Uh, so some of you are looking at me going, oh, fair enough. Everybody tries to make a golem at the age of 11. And some of you are looking at me going, what on earth does that even mean? Put up your hand if you're not sure what that means. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So I think, did Dot Golem come up a little bit before in one of our earlier talks? It's, it's, the, it's the automaton that you make out of clay, right? And it runs around, does your housework and bashes up anti-Semites, right? And you, you put the name of God and then you take it away and then he falls to a piece of dust, right? So he tried to make one of those at the age of 11. But he says that as he was making it... Um, uh, some kind of vision appeared above the thing and warned him not to, so he didn't. But he went on 
One of the great uh, misunderstandings that people have about the Gaon of Vilna, because of his virulent opposition to Hasidism, and because Hasidism was seen as founded on mystical principles, some people came to think that the Gaon of Vilna was against mysticism. And nothing could be further from the truth. The Gaon of Vilna was deep into Kabbalah, deep into mysticism, and in his age and at his time, saw it as mainstream. The thing is, it wasn't really something that you should be accessing until you had become very familiar, if not mastered, all of the other aspects of Jewish literature. And then when you had prepared yourself and you were married and you etc. etc., you could sit down and study Kabbalah. That's how the Gaon of Vilna... By the way, we, I'm not going to keep referring to Elijah the Gaon of Vilna. When you're sitting around at that dinner party and Elijah the Gaon of Vilna comes up, if you keep referring to him as Elijah the Gaon of Vilna, you're going to look like an ignoramus. You're not going to do that. You are going to refer to him and people will go, oh... You're going to refer to him as the way he's referred to inside the Jewish world. And he is known as the Gra. Gaon Rav Eliyahu. You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon. If you enjoy these lectures, you can help us cover the cost of hosting, editing and producing these podcasts for as little as $3 a month. Visit davidsolomon.online to learn more. So... The Gra would have seen that as a very, very important mainstream thing, but not for first-timers. And that's the shift that's happened in the late 20th century, early 21st century, that you now have people... And there's a reason behind that, and that would really take us on a sidetrack. That's got a lot to do with the middle of the 20th century and certain thought revolutions that happened within the Kabbalistic world itself in relation to that. But certainly in the Gaon of Vilna's time... Kabbalah was seen as mainstream. And by now, of course, in the middle of the 18th century, <coughs> mystical ideas had spread. You didn't have to be a Hasidic Rebbe to be studying mystical texts. Everybody was studying Kabbalah. Because remember, everybody was looking for meaning as well. The 18th century was very much a time where people were looking for meaning, were looking for deeper wisdom, were looking for ideas that could revolutionize themselves in the world. Now, the Gaon of Vil, uh, the Gra, be, uh, moves on uh, to become a teenager. He's probably uh, married off, as were most people at that time from that kind of milieu, uh, were married off at around, boys, boys were married off at around the age of 13, 14. Um, well, you see, the girls were about 11 or 12. Now we can sit here and go, oh, oh, right? If today you married your, you know, 14-year-old son to someone's 11-year-old girl, right, you'd end up in jail. Uh, but in those days, that was completely the norm. However, the gra sort of kind of pushed the norm and because he was busy studying, didn't want to be distracted by that, so he allowed himself to wait until he was 18 by the time he got married. But I can tell you that that would have been considered late. And the only reason he was allowed or kind of wasn't going to raise any eyebrows because of that is because by that time he had already become the Gra, and they understood the idea that he was very, very deeply involved in his learning. He wasn't an ordinary genius. He wasn't going to be an ordinary rabbi. He was going to be something extraordinary. 
Now you take this talent and also, because he wasn't just learning, he was developing his own method of learning, which is probably his most enduring legacy. And we're going to look at that in some detail. You take this talent and it wasn't like he would wake up in the morning, have breakfast, right, put on a suit and tie, go to the Beit Midrash, go to the house of study and sit and, you know, clock off at about half past five, six, come home for dinner, you know, play a bit of PlayStation, muck around on the internet, watch some TV, text some friends, look at Facebook and go to sleep. No. You take this talent and he studied for 22 hours a day. Those close to him never saw him sleep more than two hours a day and never more than half an hour at a time. During the daytime, he would close the windows and study by candlelight. So as not to be distracted. In winter, he would put his feet in icy water to stay awake. 22 hours this complete genius studied in order to become the Gra. When Jewish halachic authorities talk about the Gra, although he's living in the 18th century, which posits him directly in a period that we would call he is an Aharon, meaning he is a later authority, many scholars regard the Gra as actually being on the same level as the Rishonim, which is an entirely earlier epoch, 500 years earlier. In other words, they would put him more on the level of Maimonides in terms of his ability to engage with the law. When, in other words, when he corrects a text or comes up with a particular emendation or talks about a particular resolution of a problem, they don't see it as an 18th century sage saying that, which has a certain quality. They see it as a 12th or 11th sage, a century sage saying it. Because as you know, there's an entire hierarchy of epochs in Jewish history. And some people even say that they would consider him belonging mentally and intellectually to an earlier era, perhaps even the era of the Geonim. The, Ga the Gra himself was not um, outside of correcting opinions, even the opinions that he found in the Talmud. Such was the level at which he was engaging with the text and no one was arguing with him because no one could argue with him. He was already by the age of 30, he was the fully acknowledged greatest Torah scholar in Europe. And there were some very, very impressive scholars in Europe at the time, in the middle of the 18th century. We know famously already in the early 1750s, when the Gras was only in his early 30s, that Ibschitz and Emden dispute was submitted before him for solution. And his famous answer was, of course, who am I? I'm not going to get involved. This is not my business. He never, ever came out, really, to take sides in any, any of the political and communal disputes that were happening in Europe during his entire career, except one. 
That, of course, is the one we discussed last week. It was the controversy over Hasidism. And that's what is so immense about the opposition to Hasidism, is that the, uh, the Grah himself came out of his study house and got involved on the side of the opposition to Hasidism. And there are conceptual reasons for that, and we're going to look at it. So by the time he's at that stage, however, by the time he's in his 30s, he's already in Vilna, and the community is fully... So they build him a building, which is a small shul attached to a Bet Midrash. They pay him a communal salary, even though he held no official position. He wasn't the rabbi. He wasn't the head of an academy. He wasn't the head of a Bet Din, of a court. His job was to be the Gra. That was literally his job, right? Imagine being given a job to be yourself. And he took full advantage of that. But he didn't teach publicly. In fact, he spoke to very few people and was surrounded for most of his life by a very small circle of students. And who all record, and so most of his kind of teachings are recorded by his students. And they say that they only managed to catch a quarter of what he was saying because he did not pause. He just... And when you look at the teachings of the Gaon of Vilna that are handed down by his students... They're mostly in the form of abbreviated notes. And those abbreviated notes generally contain a heap of references to other texts. In other words, it'd say, I haven't got time to explain this to you. Look here, look here, look here, look here, look here, and then you'll find. So since that time, quite a number of people have uh, done the work of unpacking a lot of the Gras teachings along those lines, and they're all deep and they're all brilliant. There are certain texts that he did actually sit down and try to pen or compose a type of commentary to. And I'll refer to those in a few minutes. Uh, but his method of study was relentless. And one of the massive things that the Gra did, and this is, this, if, if, if we understand anything about his intellectual approach in the context of the environment in which he was living and teaching was that you would famously know, some of you would famously know, that rabbinics at this point had reached a kind of a, well there's no really kind way of saying this, it, it, it had sort of gone up its own bum. It had reached a point of this, you're familiar with this word casuistry? Hair-splitting um, arguments. Pill-pull is what they called it. And it's, used, it's a, little bit like the, a little bit like the kind of crisis that the medieval philosophy went through in the Middle Ages. It had gone into this very, very abstract world that was very alienated. I mean, that's one of the reasons what we talked about last week, the rise of Hasidism, because people weren't able to access the intellectual journey because really it was too removed from them, and therefore the advocation of the Hasidim to prioritise prayer had become so successful, 
This was the environment that the Gaon of Vilna found himself in, except that he was his own island continent sitting in the middle of this, and he completely rebelled against it. But he rebelled against it in the opposite way from Hasidism. What he argued was that none of the teachers or scholars or rabbis in Europe of his age were learning the Talmud or learning the Torah properly. You first of all need, on every single level of textual engagement, you must, your main and overriding priority is to understand the simple meaning of the text. If you find yourself going into mental dead ends, it means you haven't understood the text. And in many cases, you've ended up in those dead ends because the text you're reading is corrupted. Because you haven't read enough texts to realize that the one text you're engaging with is found here and here and here in a different form that will answer all your questions. The Gaon of Vilna also believed deeply and this is a method in education that has never gone away in the Jewish world, it's just a lot of people have forgotten it, is that Jewish texts are meant to be learnt, to some extent, sequentially. That is, first of all, you learn the Torah, which is the source of everything, then you learn the rest of the Bible, then you learn the Mishnah, then you learn the Gemara, then you learn Midrash, then you learn Halakha, more advanced Halakha that is derived from the Talmud, and you might go on to learn Kabbalah, you might learn other things, but it's sequential. And if you do not have that sequential picture, which is based on simple textual understanding, and you know what? I see this, I mean, in my, in my own travels and my own discussions, I meet sometimes very, very erudite people, rabbis and scholars, who are very, very proficient, obviously I'm not going to name names, very proficient at discussing the ideas, but they don't actually know, like, like they can see the text, but they're not reading it properly. They're not, they're not understanding what the actual words mean. And when you understand what the actual word means, says the Gra, there's nothing more for you to do than go on, to understand it and go on to the next text. He was deeply, deeply anti-Pilpulic. This system not only required an absolute adherence and a stubborn adherence to understanding what you're looking at, which is kind of similar to scientific method, but the Gra said this. That's why he's so amazing. He said this. He said, If you do not understand to the best of your ability mathematics and science, you will have no business understanding Torah. The Gra was a very, very strong adherent of what we would call today secular knowledge. 
And he made deep, deep studies of not only of maths and geometry and unfortunately, <laughs> I won't say unfortunately, curiously, his science, the science that he was studying was already by the 18th century pretty old, outdated stuff. But it's the methodology that he's trying to... I mean, his, his geometry is Euclid. He was not taking advantage because he just didn't know about all the unbelievable advances in mathematics that were being made in the 18th century. He never read Leibniz. He hadn't read Newton because he didn't know these people in Vilna. But he's reading... He wrote a book based on Euclid's geometry in order to work out aspects of Mishnaic law. And he made a very, very deep study of Hebrew grammar. Because to understand, to study linguistics, if your aim is to understand the text, you've got to understand the rules of the language in which the text is composed. How many rabbis in the 18th century in Europe do you think were studying grammar? Not many, I can tell you. Not many today. Not many today. Well, don't, don't forget the Gra would have been of that 18th, 18th century mindset, which is still with us in many parts of the Jewish world, that Rashi is Pshat. Oh, I know. You see, you've pulled that face, right? And you have no idea. You have no idea how many times I find myself pulling that exact same face. Same face. Uh, with people that you've heard of. Uh, in my discussions with him. Now, Rashi is a very important commentator and he, he claims that he's really, really striving to understand Pshat, but th that's the difference between saying Rashi is Pshat. Anyway, that's a separate thing. Uh, he was a very strong advocate of, of, of learning Rashi, but he, I'm sure the Gra would have realised that Rashi is drawing from a vast array of sources, including especially Midrash. What I'm trying to suggest here is that the Gra was an advocate of using science and whatever the products of rational human thought are in the service of Torah. That's so important a point about the Gra that I'm going to put that on the board, right? Science in the service of Torah. Of course, for the Gra, Torah is not just simply the five books of Moses. Torah is the entire spectrum of Jewish learning. Uh, and for the Gra, the Torah was everything. Everything that existed in the world could be found in the Torah. You just had to locate it by acquiring the proper tools. And the really big thing about the Gra was, he said, I did this. I made myself. I was not zapped into this. He was very proud of the fact that he didn't rely on miracles. He was born with a very, very prodigious mind, it's true, but he worked at it and he said he was aware that not everybody could become the Gra, but he was encouraging people to 
go on that journey, go on that intellectual journey and acquire it for themselves. I think that was one of his big problems with the Hasidic movement. See, one of the things I didn't talk about last week in the Hasidic movement when I was listing all the different ways in which that thought revolution of the Hasidic movement came about, I didn't really talk about the fact that one of the ideas that had arisen out of already the third and fourth generation of Hasidic leaders was the concept of the tzaddik, the concept of the righteous leader, the concept of the miracle-working Rebbe that everybody else was kind of annulled to. And you got your spiritual feed through the Rebbe. We see that idea still with us in the Hasidic world. For the Gaon of Vilna, that idea was an anathema. Everybody is responsible for acquiring for themselves their own spiritual achievements. And the crowd was very big on that. One of the... Um, I mean, there are many, 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 many stories about the Gaon of Vilna. Those of you who are interested in looking at the Gra, and they're usually stories that are a test to his brilliance uh, and his amazing mind. Look, he went on an exile for a while. This is a big thing, actually worth mentioning this. You know, in the 18th century, some of these sages and scholars and mystic figures would go on these, like, exilic journeys. No one knew where they went. They would wander around. don't know if they went as far as India, but um, yeah, it was a bit of a walk. It was a bit of a voyage of self-discovery, a bit of a voyage littéraire. It was a kind of, you know, it was a thing that you did. It was recommended that at some point in your career you should actually, like, take a break for yourself and go into exile and find yourself. So there are many stories about the Gaon of Vilna wandering around for a couple of years in Europe being the Gaon of Vilna, but going incognito. And the famous, I mean, you know the famous stories. And of course, he has a, uh, a, carriage, a carriage driver who would go with him and like, you know, just basically look after him because being the Gra, he's not necessarily that functional. And you go around and then, so this Balagola, as they call it in is the guy who was his, basically his cart driver, his cabbie, if you like, said to him one day, look, he goes, you know, when we go into a town, right, you suddenly reveal yourself as the Gaon of Vilna and everybody like, ah, oh, the Gaon of Vilna and they take you into the front and then they, they, they give you unbelievable honour and then they, they put this incredible meal in front of you and they, they give you presents and they give you money and, and, and people just come and pay you such unbelievable respect. He goes, but me, right, they take me out the back they sit me outside the stables. I'm lucky if I get half a sausage that the dog's eaten, right? And then it's time to, I've got to sit out there and wait for you in the cold. And then it's time to go and we get in the horse and we go. So the Garnaville says, well, no problem. Next town we come to, you can be me and I'll be you. <laughs> and you know, the famous story, obviously, is that uh, they get to the town and... Uh, the, the, the Balagola is brought in and they think he's the Gaon of Vilna and they, they, they take him and they make a big fuss over him and they give him a fantastic meal and they give him great honour and then they say to him, uh, while you're here, uh, we have a very, very difficult problem in the Talmud we would like you to solve. And they bring him one of the most dense, complex tractates of the Talmud and they put it in front of him and they show him where the problem is and they tell him the problem they say please tell us what's the answer and he said oh you fools that is so simple even my car driver could answer that. <laughs> so it's a famous story uh, the Gaon of Vilna actually at one point tried to uh, make it to the land of Israel 
but uh, for mysterious reasons we do not know why he didn't make it, but he was a very big advocate of people going to the land of Israel and he sent several groups. We're going to talk probably more next week about the different aliyot of the 18th century and why that was happening, but there was a, a mystical call throughout the Jewish world to resettle the land of Israel and both the Hasidic movement and the followers of the Gaon of Vilna were at the forefront of this particular movement. He has several very, very important students. The Graz most famous student, famous because his legacy is also very enduring, and his most famous student is, anyone know? Most famous student of the Gaon of Vilna is Rabbi Chaim of you know this, I'm going to say this, and some of you are going to go, ah, oh. of Chaim of Volozhin. Oh, I told you, you see, Volozhin. People go, oh, 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 Volozhin, oh. I didn't realize you were talking about Chaim of Volozhin. <coughs> Chaim of Volozhin took the Gaon of Vilna's methodology of textual study, and with that methodology, created a new type of institution. That institution is what we now know as the yeshiva. The yeshiva in Volozhin was the first of the new type of yeshiva until the 18th century, or the late 18th century, when people studied, when young men wanted to enter into that world of study, it was pretty much by free association. You would rock up either at a synagogue or at a study hall somewhere, or you would try and get close to one of the rabbis that you liked the sound of his teachings, and you would hang out there until you basically... But it was basically all self-structured. There were no major academies that were supported institutions where students could go, where there was a faculty, where there were lodgings, where there were meals, where there was a structured syllabus. Those things didn't exist. Chaim of Volozhin creates, with the Graz blessing, creates the first yeshiva and of course in its wake sprang up all of the great yeshivot of Europe, you know, Mir, Slabodka, Ponovich and so on. And then of course that got... Uh, after the war, some of which then got transplanted in America and in the land of Israel and so on. So now we have uh, hundreds and hundreds of major yeshivot around the world, but they all started on this model of Chaim of Volozhin based on the Gaon of Vilna. Now, in Volozhin. And interestingly, there are pictures of it. There are pictures of it. It lasted right up until almost until the end of the 19th century. So we have photos of it. Um, yes, this is Lithuania, Belarus, that area, because by now, by the end of the 18th already, that whole area is being ripped up. But I, I, I want to move on, because I, 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 we, we are going to run out, because I've just been discussing the Gra, who's so fascinating, and there are things about the Gaona Vilna that I haven't told you that I'm going to regret not telling you, but we'll think of them later. Oh, well, hello. I mean, we can't go past the fact that in 1777 was the big edict of excommunication against the Hasidic movement, which really stamped Vilna as the centre of the opposition to Hasidic movement. It was like, here's the line in the sand and Hasidism will not come into Lithuania. 
After the Gra died, there were many people who were running around talking about teachings in his name. And so the community of, the, of, of Vilnius, or Vilna, produced an edict to say that only those teachings that could be ascertained to be in the Gra's handwriting would be considered his authentic teachings. That decree, amazingly, was made on the 19th of Kislev, 1798, which was, if you recall from last week, exactly the same day that Shnir Zalman of Liadi, the first Chabad Rebbe, was released from prison and is still observed today as a big Yom Tov, as a big festival in the Hasidic world. It's amazing how that same day in history was important to both camps. But I want to move west. I've got to move west. But I want us to retain what I said about the Gra, because it's so fascinating what's happening west in tandem and in parallel. As you know, the 18th century by now, by the time we get halfway into the 18th century, I'm talking now general European history, we're really entering into this thing that we call, or that historians and the history of philosophers of the history of ideas call the age of reason. Where even kind of, it's almost like the Enlightenment plus. So we've moved on now and we're entering into an age of the age, the real height of the age of Enlightenment, where some of the great philosophical ideas that have been talked about in the last century are now attempting to be applied. And particularly in the sphere of politics and government. Now this plays out in different countries in different ways. England, for example, has been experimenting for the last century, ever since they chopped off the head of their king and then reinstated a king. They have been playing with this concept called constitutional monarchy and they have basically created a state that is run by parliament and so their chosen kings are preferably idiots, right? And that works well for England. You know, as you don't want a genius as a king. You want just someone who's going to be happy to, you know, eat off a gold plate and be an idiot. In France, France was still clinging to this idea of autocratic monarchy which is why when it had its revolution there was so much bloodshed because they had no intermediate passage that went from there to the opposite. But in other countries there were different models emerging and one big model that was emerging in Germany or what was kind of going to become Germany such as Prussia and in Austria and to some extent in Russia was this thing called the enlightened despot, enlightened absolutism. So your monarch was an absolutist, but your monarch was enlightened. Who are the three most famous enlightened absolutist monarchs of the 18th century are Frederick the Great, Catherine the Great in Russia, all contemporary by the way, all the second half of the 18th century, Frederick the Great, Catherine the Great in Russia, and, 
and Joseph in Aust- Joseph II in Austria, the son of Mother uh, Maria Theresa. That's a Mother Theresa. The son of Maria Theresa. Uh, Marie Antoinette's brother, of course. And all of them, from top down, were trying to change their society. And of course, inevitably, in that process of changing the mores and changing the values and changing the laws of society to make it more equitable, to make it more tolerant, to bring in radical ideas like free speech, to bring in... To bring in to, to, to sponsor science and art and literature, inevitably, in all of that project of being an enlightened absolutist despot, a question is going to come before you, and that question is going to be, what happens with the Jews? What are we going to do with the Jews? So the answer to all of that is complex, as it always is. Let me give you an example. Don't think, don't think it's so simple. You know, we sit here, I'm, I'm really, really, sorry, I really, really need to pound this point with all of us. Is that all, every single person in this room was born into a world in which the idea of a secular Jew is a given. It exists. If you want to be a secular Jew, the only people who are going to stop you are your own family. Right? But apart from them, you're perfectly... The the concept exists. And you can choose to live where you want and be who you want. All of us were born into that world. Certainly those of us who were born in Western countries, but I would venture to say that just about everybody, at least that world, that idea exists. That idea did not exist in the 18th century. As far as the rights of Jews were concerned, we're still kind of in the Middle Ages. But we're in the age of reason. So many people are asking these questions. But even if we go to a country that was at the forefront of social change, which would have been England... And since Cromwell in the 17th century, Jews have been drifting into England from Holland, from Central Europe, a little bit from Eastern Europe, not too far east, but Jews have been, thousands of Jews have been coming in. And even in England, in 1753, based on a fairly progressive Whig initiative, they introduce what became known famously as the Jew Bill. And the Jew Bill basically suggested that Jews could find a pathway to become naturalised members of English society. What we would now effectively call citizens. Citizens of the state is really a post-Napoleonic idea, but the idea that they could become naturalised Englishmen Can you imagine a society that would be askance at the idea of foreign refugees wanting to find a pathway to citizenship? (laughs) And yet, within a year, within a year, that initiative and that bill had to be withdrawn because of the public protest and outcry at the idea that Jews could be equal. That was in London. So imagine what was happening further east. And yet... 
great progress was being made in places like Germany and Austria precisely because they had absolutist monarchs who regarded themselves as enlightened. But they weren't changing things for Jews fundamentally, they were changing it circumstantially. So that some Jews could have certain rights. Now, into that universe, oh, oh, I'm going to talk about this person for five minutes and we're going to have a break. We're going to have a very quick break, right? Because I need to posit this person. You know who I'm going to talk about, but I need to give him five minutes before, and then after the break, we'll talk about him in greater depth. All right? Put up your hand if you don't know who I'm going to talk about. Oh, so everybody knows. All right. So he's born. So this is the parallel person I want to look at with the Gras. And this is a person whose influence is overwhelming. And of course, he's born in Dessau. And that's why he's referred to by some people as Reb Moshe of Dessau. But that's a very shtetlik name for him. He was, in fact, he didn't have a surname. I mean, there's a good example. There's a good example of things that Jews were told to do. If you want to be a normal person of society, get yourself a bloody surname, you barbarian, right? And so Joseph II, for example, was ordering Jews to get surnames. You know, most of the surnames in the Jewish world today were developed in the 18th century. Generally, they were allowed to more or less choose a surname. They just had to have one. So you'd take your father's name. Your father's name was Mendel. You become Mendelssohn. So he became Moses Mendelssohn. And he is born in Dessau and he is pursuing a rabbinic career. He's a very bright boy. Not at Gra level, no one's at Gra level, but he's like your average genius. <laughs> and he's pursuing a rabbinic career. And his teacher is Rabbi David Frankel, who was the rabbi of Dessau. And then Rabbi David Frankel gets a position in Berlin. So the young Moses Mendelssohn, who his name wasn't Moses Mendelssohn at that point, his name was Moses Mendelssohn probably a few weeks after he arrived in Berlin, he goes and follows his teacher to Berlin. And he has a series of opportunities, uh, both commercially and intellectually, uh, that enable him to make a very quick adjustment and uh, enculturation into Germans, Berlin society of the time. Berlin was regarded as the absolute ground zero bullseye of what was interesting about the Enlightenment in continental Europe at the time. Uh, Frederick was leading the, the, the whole sponsorship of arts, literature. There was a completely free press. Philosophical ideas were being discussed. Even French philosophers were allowed to talk in that country. Uh, you know, and so they were discussing everybody from, you know, I mean, look at the great philosophical works that had just been written, whether it was Hobbes, Locke, Spinoza, Hume, Descartes, uh, Wolfe, and uh, several others. And of course, Moses Mendelssohn teaches himself German properly, learns to think, gets involved in some commercial enterprises that don't hurt him because they're very, very successful for him. And he soon becomes a kind of a 
an intellectual bon vivant. He's hanging out at some of the salons there. What do people do at salons in the 18th century in Europe when they're intellectuals? What do you do? You sit. What else are you doing? You're drinking what? Coffee. And what else are you doing? You're playing chess. You're playing chess. So Mendelssohn's playing chess. <laughs> and in the course of a chess game in a salon, in an intellectual salon in Berlin, he strikes up a very, very interesting friendship with a young German playwright called... You know this. If you know anything about Mendelssohn, this is what you know. You know that he strikes up a friendship with Lessing. Ephraim Gotthold Lessing, who is obviously not of the tribe and a very kind of immersed, up-and-coming German playwright, and the two form an incredible friendship. Lessing has just written a play based on his belief that Jews are normal people <laughs> and that Jews should be accorded full rights. He's part of that radical party. And uh, when he meets Mendelssohn in this cafe, this Jew, not just Jew, learned Jew, who's able to talk philosophy and play chess, he can't believe what he's seeing. It's like an elephant playing the violin. And he goes, that's amazing. You're exactly what I've been talking about. Based on Lessing's encouragement, Mendelssohn enters a state-sponsored philosophy competition, an essay competition. This essay competition was on the topic of, very 18th century topic, of, yeah, is there any way in which we can prove metaphysical truths via mathematics? Uh, philosophically. Uh, Mendelssohn enters this competition which is like an open competition. You know, like they might have a tennis open or a golf open today in Australia, right? So they had an open philosophy essay competition in Germany. Mendelssohn wins. Mendelssohn wins. And people go, oh, he won. How nice. The runner-up was Kant. <laughs> so Mendelssohn is now huge. And then he writes a book called The Phaedon based on Plato's Phaedo, which is an essay, an amazingly beautifully composed in stunning German that even the Gentile Germans found beautiful, on the immortality of the soul. Now they're calling him the German Socrates, and he is the biggest philosopher in Europe, in Germany. He's not just a Jewish boy who did well, and we're very proud. He was... In during the 1760s and the 1770s, until basically Kant took over, he was the greatest philosopher in Germany. And people were recording him as such. And then Frederick issues him, and just to show you what age we're still living in, Frederick issues him with a tolerance patent that allows him, not his wife and kids, but him, to live in the city of Berlin. Obviously, his wife and children could live there under his patronage, but he was the one that had the, the patent to live there. 
a Jew had to be given that by the sovereign to be allowed to have a permanent residence in Berlin. He got the right to live there permanently and, and without harassment. Um, we're going to find out in the next part of it, when we talk about the man who was the bridge between these two worlds, what it was like to rock up at Berlin without one of those. Um, now, we're going to have a break, but I'm, we have, we, remember, we're halfway through Mendelssohn. We're halfway through Mendelssohn. So we know, well, first of all, we have to finish Mendelssohn, because we can't not do Mendelssohn. But we still have one more fascinating person to talk about. I was hoping to tack Rothschild on at the end, but I don't know if we'll get time. But I want to do, there's a very important person that's going to bridge all that. And so please, let's keep it to 10 minutes. Yeah, let's have a 10-minute break, and I'll see you back here in 10 minutes. Amen. Now, um, I promised people I would keep it short and the break. So Mendelssohn is in Berlin, and he's now very famous, and all sorts of intellectuals are coming to visit him. And then after a while, there is a very kind of interesting dispute. There's a few mini disputes that Mendelssohn has to deal with. When I say disputes, people that just can't handle the fact that he's Mendelssohn. But then there's one that actually is very, very influential on his life and on subsequent Jewish thought. And that is due to a young, you know, a group that really rallied behind a, a young Christian thinker called Lavater. And they basically said this, Ah, Mendelssohn. You're Mendelssohn. We're all very, very impressed. But... At the end of the day, you see, it's a very, what's a very important fact that maybe I didn't spell out here, and I really should. This is important, especially in the light of what's subsequently going to happen with Mendelssohn and his ideas, is that Mendelssohn was a religiously observant Jew to the day he died. Despite being what we're going to call the granddaddy or the, even the father of the Haskalah, he was someone who believed that Jews should stay, not just stay Jews, but should be practicing Jews. He even argued that even Jews that convert to Christianity should stay practicing Jews. He really believed that the future of the Jewish people was dependent upon them being Jews. It's very important. But they come to him and they go, Mendelssohn, we don't understand... You're the great age of reason philosopher in Germany, but you live your life according to the Old Testament. What are you doing? How is this possible? How is this consistent? And in fact, we challenge you to convert to Christianity, to refute it or convert, do the right thing that your conscience should tell you if you are the age of reason. Because there was an assumption, an assumption in Gentile Europe at the time that Christianity was a more evolved religion than Judaism. This is an assumption that has not gone away in much of the Christian world. They say, oh, we respect the Jews, <laughs> but really we're just waiting for them to see the light because... Christianity is a higher form of spiritual evolution. I use that word evolution advisedly. I know I can see you having an issue. 
As a result of these and other challenges, um, Mendelssohn writes a very, very important work that really hasn't been bettered or superseded. It's, it's, if we had an entire talk just on this book, it would be worth it. It's not a big book. It's not a big book. You could read it in an afternoon, although you'd probably have to take several afternoons to read it several times to really understand what he's saying. But not, not you, anyone. I mean, me as well. I didn't mean that patronisingly. But the book is called... Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, you know, there are different points that we could discuss about what Mendelssohn is covering in Jerusalem and what he's trying to achieve. On the one hand, he outlines an entire theory about Jewish law, a theory about the role of Jews in, within a state, uh, a political theory about at the end of the day, it's a theory about the cornerstone value of freedom and of freedom of conscience. Not only can the state not tell me what to think, but even my own religious leaders, such as rabbis and rabbinical courts, have no business telling me what I should be thinking and what I should be saying. The fundamental cornerstone of being a person of religious belief in a state is that you are free to pursue your revealed religion. The Torah, says Mendelssohn, this is a very important point, does not contain metaphysical truths. That's not what it's there for. For that I have philosophy. As it happens, says Mendelssohn, I believe that Judaism is completely consistent with reason. In that he shares the same line that was coming through from Maimonides, of the great philosophers that says that Judaism is a religion of reason. But the Torah is not coming to tell me absolute metaphysical truths. The Torah is there to teach me laws. The Torah is there to teach me how to live, to tell me what I need to do and how I'm supposed to behave. What I think, what I believe, what I want to talk about, these are issues in which no one can interfere. And when it comes to freedom, says Mendelssohn, when it comes to this idea of freedom, we, the Jewish people, gave that idea to the world. We are a nation that invented freedom. Or rather, God invented it for us. Took us out of the house of bondage and gave us this thing called national freedom. And we gave freedom to the world through concepts such as the Sabbath. So long as the Jews are keeping the Sabbath, the world will never be fully enslaved. The Torah is talking about a particular type of state. That state can't exist in the modern age. And so the Torah is there to tell me how I live a fully revealed life inside the modern state. But absolutely paramount to that is freedom of conscience. 
and freedom of belief. These are very important ideas that we take for granted. And what they effectively do, although that's not quite how Mendelssohn meant them, but what they effectively do is they create the conditions conceptually by which the idea of a secular person can arise. Someone who is Jewish by affiliation and by birthright and even by declaration, but who doesn't necessarily live in exactly the way that tradition tells them to because their fundamental freedoms are guaranteed by the state and because they live supposedly and hopefully according to a higher ideal. Now Moses Mendelssohn didn't believe that people should be making up religions for themselves and living according to their higher ideals because they felt like it. He felt that all nations had natural laws and the Torah was the set of natural laws for the Jewish people. But just as different nations have different laws, so different individuals might have different religion or different perceptions of what religion is. These are very, very fundamental ideas that we take for granted today. The whole thing, the whole concept that you know, is talked about in subsequent political theory in America and so on about the separation of church and state, these ideas owe a lot to 18th century thinkers such as Mendelssohn. But Mendelssohn goes beyond that. Mendelssohn now turns his attention, you see, the problem is, is that it's all very well for Mendelssohn and other Jews like him who were living in Berlin, who were living in Hamburg, who were living in Amsterdam, some of whom might be living in London, who are doing okay, and they've even, you know, their kids are at universities, and they're sitting in salons playing chess, and they're talking philosophy. But the vast majority of the Jewish world is mired in ignorance and superstition. His ideas transmitted to his children and they ended up not being... Well, famously, famously, um, by the time we're two or three generations beyond Mendelssohn in his own family, no one's Jewish anymore. Anti-secularists love to throw that at Mendelssohn. And we're going to look at that right now. Because what Mendelssohn argues is this. Mendelssohn wants to open up to the Jewish world the value of Enlightenment education. How do you do that? How do you do that? How do you open that up to Jews? You're not going to go and schlep yourself to the Bach on the other side of the gefilte fish line and start teaching Newton and Descartes and the philosophy of Hobbes. You're not going to do that. How do you do it? Well, there you go. The man knows. You translate the Torah into German, into a beautiful German, so that people, Jews can learn German via the Torah. Whereas the Gra is saying, learn science, learn mathematics, learn other languages even, in order to understand the Torah, Mendelssohn is using the Torah in order to open up to Jews the sciences and mathematics of the Enlightenment. This is Torah in the service of science.
Once you know German, then you can open yourself up to all of the goodies that the Enlightenment has to offer and you'll become the kind of cultured person that the great big goyish society will say to you, come on down, we'll welcome you with open arms. We will be happy. Mendelssohn and his colleagues believed that Jews need to become enculturated so that the wider society would be happy to give them citizenship or equal rights because equal rights requires you to have a level of education to be able to participate in what the society is doing. Mendelssohn believed that this would raise the level of Jews and raise the level, at the same time preserving all the ordinances and particular spiritual treasures and heritage of the Jewish people themselves. So Mendelssohn and his colleagues become very interested in the revival of Hebrew. Not yet as a spoken language, that's going to be another hundred years until the Zionists do that, but as a language of culture, a language of communication, a language of art, a language of literature, a language of science, a language that can be used to convey the ideas of the Enlightenment. That was behind the famous, the start of the famous um, periodical Hama'asef, that is behind the idea of Dubno Wesley and all the guys of the early Haskalah. The term Haskalah, the term Haskalah, which really Mendelssohn is absolutely the forefront. If you say that Mendelssohn's the father of the Haskalah, you're not wrong, but the word Haskalah is often mistranslated as the Jewish Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, as you know in German, is the Aufklarung, which is a kind of like an awakening. In Hebrew, it's the Nu'ut, which is a similar idea, an enlightenment. But Haskalah has as its core, Sechel, but in a Hifil form, which really means a form of education. It's about educating Jews. That famous translation of the Torah possibly his most controversial, but perhaps enduring document, was known as the Biur. The Biur is Mendelssohn's famous translation of the Torah into German. Uh, but Mendelssohn uh, died, uh, unfortunately, when he was uh, quite young. I don't even think uh, he was uh, 60 years old. I mean, he was, he was uh, born in, nine, in 1729, <laughs> And he died in uh, 1786, so he was only 57. He died as a result of uh, various stresses and complications that were brought on by many of the intellectual disputes that he had to partake in. But his legacy in terms of his thought, his creation of the Haskalah that is going on to have immeasurable impact. They started schools for Jewish children. This is something that was kind of where secular subjects were taught. Now, some of the early figures of the Haskalah wanted to claim the Gra as one of their own because the Gra was interested in science and mathematics, but the Gra was having none of it. The conceptual direction was going the other way for the Gra. For the Gra, everything was in the service of Torah. The Gra didn't need you to go out in the world. He just wanted to bring what the world had to offer intellectually so you can bring it into the room that you were studying the page to understand what the Torah was saying. Mendelssohn was entirely the opposite. 
And if we understand those parallels, then we really understand what the currents were in the 18th century, the further west you went. Um, And of course, Lessing's famous play, Nathan the Wise, which is really about Mendelssohn, the famous... uh, Because for Mendelssohn, for Mendelssohn, religion was not about truths. Truths were philosophically arguable. Religion was about how you lived your life. Religion, whatever religion you have, its truth value is borne out by the way you act and the way you behave and the way you live, not by what you believe. And of course, this was to be consistent with some of the great philosophical advances of the end of the 18th century, where things like all of the proofs from the Middle Ages for the existence of God were demolished. Demolished by Hume and Kant. And I mean demolished. When you go today in the... And I'm, I'm, I'm talking to an audience that I hope is slightly sympathetic to what I'm saying because it's a bit radical what I'm about to say. So as soon as I've said it, you can forget it. But when you go today inside the rabbinic world and the yeshiva world, just the same as if you go into the Christian fundamentalist world, right? These guys... These guys are like they're living on the other side of the Enlightenment. They're giving you arguments for the existence of God that were completely deconstructed and demolished at the end of the 18th century already by German rationalist philosophers who showed that you can't prove the existence of God. You can live in a way that reveals God. That was not a German philosophical idea. That's a very Jewish idea. But in terms of intellectually proving, so in other words, metaphysical truths do not belong in religious discourse. They belong somewhere else. And they should certainly never be coerced. And they should certainly never be the cause of wars and conflicts. (laughs) Seek truth, says Mendelssohn in tremendous prophetic vein. That's how he ends his famous book, Jerusalem. Right? Live peaceably, seek truth. Now, in the remaining time, I want to talk about a character that uh, has ceaseless fascination for students of the 18th century and someone about whom not a lot is known. Well, a lot is known, actually, but not enough. Not enough people know enough about this person, historically. And the, his name, I'll tell you his name, and you can tell me... If you've all heard about this person and know all about him, then I won't need to talk about him and we can go back and talk about other things. But he bridges the gap between Mendelssohn and the Grau, or rather between the Grau and Mendelssohn. And his name is Solomon Maimon. Who's heard of Solomon Maimon? Oh, you have? wonderful that you haven't because he's a fantastic character and I can just talk about him for a little bit because one of the fabulous things about Solomon Maimon is that unlike a lot of interesting people who lived in the 18th century Solomon Maimon wrote a Lebensgeschichte he wrote his own personal history an autobiography hi I'm Solomon Maimon, this was my life. As a result of which, we have once again 
a tremendous window into what life was like in the 18th century. And I was thinking about this, and so I actually, on Sunday afternoon, it's not a long book. First of all, it's hysterically funny. It's not a long book. You could read it in a couple of hours. I recommend it to anybody who's interested in 18th century history. And when I was, as I was rereading it on Sunday afternoon, it occurred to me that if you have digested the things and the themes that we're talking about in this course on the 18th century, then you will really, really understand what Maimon is talking about. Because he really, he touches on just about every issue and every historical circumstance. Maimon is born, it's like, I like to think of him sometimes as, a, as the man who fell between the gaps. Ge geographically and temporally. He's born in 1750, so already smack in the middle of the 18th century. And he's born and grows up just on the wrong side of the gefilte fish line. Oh, I say the wrong side. Maimon himself would tell you it was the wrong side. His name wasn't Solomon Maimon. His name was Solomon ben, Shlomo ben Yehoshua. Right? Solomon, the son of Joshua. And he's born in Mir, which is today in Belarus. <coughs> and he, of course, by his own admission, is a genius. <laughs> Uh, obviously not at gra level, but he's like, you know, your average ranking genius. He has uh, smicha, rabbinical ordination at the age of 12, which is kind of impressive, but not unheard of, right? And he's married at 14. His bride is 11. The whole circumstances of how he got married are hilarious. He describes that. But he is <coughs> insatiably intellectually curious insatiably but he doesn't know beyond the confines of his own world so he is constantly hassling people he's not born with the greatest set of social skills I'm here to tell you and you can see that when you read the book he's constantly hassling people for wisdom and to tell him things that he doesn't know <coughs> And he gives several different stages that he goes through. Anyway, by the time he's uh, in his late teens, he's working, he's already got a child. He's working as a malamud, as a teacher for a couple of the families around that can afford to throw him a few grushim. Life is hard, life is tough, as well as all the different waves of Cossack invasions I was talking about. You know, life is just poor and it's tough and it's grimy and it's ignorant and it's superstitious. And he knows this. Even though he doesn't know anything better, he knows this. Then he discovers Kabbalah. Then someone tells him, oh, the real secrets of wisdom are in Kabbalah. So he goes, he finds a Kabbalah teacher, and he asks, begs this guy if he can read his books. And the guy goes, I don't really want to lend you my books, but you can come to my house and read my books. So he goes to his house and he reads his books, except that Solomon Maimon doesn't really isn't sensitive to the fact that this guy, this young man himself, who's the Kabbalah master of the nearest village, has just got married and he's living in a one-room house with his new bride and Solomon Maimon sitting there all night, you know, flicking through the books, 
and they're kind of constantly impatient for him to go home. Eventually, so he lets him borrow the books. And, and so he's reading through the books and then he comes across this idea in Kabbalah of a particular formula called Ro'eh ve'enon nir'eh. One who can see but is not seen. In other words, it's a formula for invisibility. <laughs> so he goes to his Kabbalah teacher and he says, I want to do this. The guy says, oh, you need a lot of preparation. You need this. You need to fast. You need to pray. You need to immerse yourself. You need to study this. And that. He does it all. He does it all. And now invisible, he walks into the study hall. And he goes up to one of his colleagues and smacks him on the head. At which point the colleague turns around and bops him in the face. Maimon realizes it hasn't worked. So he goes back to his master. He says it didn't work. And he goes, you didn't do it properly. Try it again. He writes this in great detail. And he goes and he does the invisibility formula again. This time he decides he's not going to hit anybody. He's not going to play any pranks. He's just going to go into the house of study invisibly and just stand there and observe what it's like without him. And he does that, and he's only been there a minute before someone comes up and asks him to solve a question in Talmud. So that kind of disillusioned him a bit from Kabbalah. And then he hears, listen to this. This is the beginning of Maimon's journey. He hears that in a town called Slutsk, which is about 30 miles away, there is a guy... <laughs> who has a book in German on optics. This is the world they're living in. Someone passing through Mir told him that in Slutz there's a guy who has a book in German. Maimon doesn't know German. Maimon can't read anything but Hebrew letters. So he gets, he goes, he walks on foot, he walks to Slutsk. He writes this, he walks to Slutsk to look at this book. He can't read German. But he has noticed in his own books that he does read on Talmud and on Kabbalah and other things that sometimes in some of the books which were printed in various printing houses that the pages are numbered with letters and so he works out, he decodes for himself the system about how German might be read and then he notices that there's a certain correlation with Yiddish and so he kind of develops on his own, without ever speaking or having hearing it spoken, a kind of understanding of German. He goes through this book on optics, absolutely gobbles it. Uh, then wants more, totally thirsty. And so comes back to Mir and then he says, I can't handle this life anymore. This is not me. I am going to go where I I'm just going to, he just goes, he says, I'm just going to go to the top of the tree. I'm going to go to Berlin. Now, this is a guy that has never, ever left the shtetl. It's not like Mendelssohn. Mendelssohn was born in Dessau, but Dessau was like culture land compared to Mir. Right? The, 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 the journey from Dessau to Berlin is nowhere near the conceptually and physically. The journey from Mir to Berlin, he goes to Berlin. And in Berlin, 
in Berlin. I mean, you got to read this because you got it, it gives you an understanding, right? If you just turn up in Berlin in the 18th century and you're a Jew, right? And you just wander into town. You can't just wander into town. You can't just hang out. If you arrive on an official, what they called the post, which was an official um, carriage that was like a properly sponsored, like flying, it would be the difference between um, being dragged off a beach in the Northern Territory to uh, flying into Sydney Airport on Qantas. Right? If you fly in on Qantas and you've got enough money to get a taxi to a hotel, it's going to be a little while longer before people bother you. But if you just rock up on the beach, um, things are going to happen. So he just turns up at Berlin. Now, there was a special building by the gate in Berlin for these kind of Jews, beggars, itinerants, seekers and wannabes that were just wandering into Berlin. And they would basically give you a day a day's lodging to explain yourself what you wanted to do in Berlin and if they didn't think your reason was good enough you're on your way and I mean on your way there was no arguing so Maimon turns up his name wasn't Solomon Maimon at this point his name was Solomon ben Yehoshua but they said what's your name so he heard that people were taking surnames so he wanted to try and be impressive. Already, wherever he was going, people were laughing at his German and the way he spoke, because he spoke a combination of Yiddish and Polish and German. He didn't know what he spoke. But he, the one book that really impressed him was Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed, because it was the only philosophical book he'd ever read. And he, <laughs> he said, Oh, my name? Solomon Maimon. Right? And he said, Okay, Solomon Maimon, what do you want to do here? So he thought, oh, um, I'm going to, uh, I've come to Berlin to study medicine. <laughs> anyway, he gets kicked out of Berlin within 12 hours. And he, but he writes, like he sat outside the walls of Berlin and he cried. He cried. So great was his thirst. Anyway, he wandered around for a few more years. And eventually he gets back to Berlin. He managed to save enough money as a tutor here and there. He's in Germany now so he can access some books. He teaches himself a little bit more to become a little bit more cultured. And eventually he finds his way back. And this time he flies in with Qantas and, uh, in the 18th century. And he's in the middle of Berlin. And where does he go straight away? Moses Mendelssohn. Knocks on Mendelssohn's door. And Mendelssohn at first is bemused by him. Mendelssohn kind of, it's a bit of a Rachmanus, take him in, and he allows, through Mendelssohn's contact, he is allowed access to intellectual society in Berlin. But his social skills completely keep getting him undone, and he writes about this almost unironically, about how he just doesn't seem to be able to... Anyway, He's there, he's in Berlin for a few years, and eventually he gets kicked out of Berlin because people just can't handle his rude and boorish manners. Uh, he ends up going to Dessau, he ends up going to Hamburg, and then one day, of course, his wife and child turn up, and they say, where have you been for the last 10 years? And uh, he has to divorce her and so on. I mean, it's a very strange story. But then something happens, and he gets a hold of 
the great new philosophical text that has just been released in Germany, which, by the way, as you know, is a book that's going to effectively go on and completely change the way that philosophy and cognitive science was going to go. And that, of course, was Kant's critique of pure reason, which is probably the greatest philosophical work of the 18th century in Germany. And he reads it, and he decides that he will write a commentary on Kant. Right? (laughs) With his kind of German, Polish, Yiddish, whatever. But by now his German's a little better, but he's going to write a commentary on Kant. So he writes a commentary on Kant, on critique of pure reason. And he finds someone who was a student of Kant's for a while and also manages to get a couple of letters of introduction from Mendelssohn and whatever, although Mendelssohn by this stage has already told him, look, just don't hang around in Berlin, your presence here is a little too awkward. As much as I, as much as I want to be tolerant, Mendelssohn, and I'm the philosopher of tolerance, nevertheless, you know, you, whatever. But um, he manages somehow to get this big package with his manuscript of the commentary of Critique of Pure Reason to Immanuel Kant, who is living in Königsberg. Now, Kant is already by this stage, he's just the world's greatest philosopher. And Kant, without a doubt, was an extreme, uh, extreme mind, an extreme person, living in Königsberg and with very little time, but suddenly this big package, and Kant himself writes about this, this big package arrived on his doorstep. But due to the respect that he owed to this student, former student of his who... He, he, liked, he opened the package and he thought, I haven't got time to look at this, right? And he was just about to wrap it back up again and send it back. He writes this, this Kant writes this, and he goes, but then I just happened to glance at one of the pages, says Kant, of this thing sent to me by this person, Solomon Maimon, this commentary on, my, on the critique of pure reason. And he goes, and then I sat down and I read the whole thing. And I'm here to tell you, says Kant, that no one has understood me like Solomon Maimon. And he writes this, and he writes Solomon Maimon, this unbelievable letter that, of course, Maimon produces in full in the end of the Lebensgeschichte, which totally changed the fortunes of Maimon, because now he was there wherever he went. He was the guy that Kant wrote a letter to that he understood totally his thing. So... Uh, Maimon died at a, at a very early age. He died in 1800. He was only 47. He was probably a shtickel alcoholic by then. He'd had a pretty hard life. But he is an ex- such a classic illustration of the 18th century of someone who literally picks himself up from the Bach and walks. I mean, it took him months to get to Berlin and he nearly died several times on the way. He had to starve for five weeks on a boat. It was incredible. But the sheer determination of this person to become enlightened was a classic example of what was ultimately going to happen. Now, you also know that during the 18th century, of course, uh, Catherine the Great ends up holding sway. And we spoke about this briefly last week, that all a whole lot of areas of here suddenly come under Russian rule. And she's now got to deal, even though she doesn't want Jews in Russia, but now she has to deal with Jews because we've got the population, the Jewish population of the world at this time by the late 18th century is probably about two and a half million. The largest Jewish cities in the world by the end of the 18th century 
that is, the only ones really with probably populations over about 10,000 were Amsterdam and Constantinople. There were some other significant population centres, but most Jews were living in small to medium-sized market towns right across Europe. To live in a city was a very, very uh, privileged and not terribly Jewish thing to be doing. Um, so you can see how that's reversed, obviously, now. <laughs> and uh, just let me uh, talk in the last couple of minutes, because we have to finish uh, at 25 past, because we have to be out of the building at 9.30 tonight. If we're already talking about someone like Mendelssohn, and, or Maimon, Jews who, in whichever circumstances they were, really lifted themselves out to become a part of the wider society as Jews in a way that was kind of unheard of, then really we need just to spend a few minutes talking about uh, one of the most remarkable of those, and that, of course, is uh, the family that was living in the uh, Judengasse in Frankfurt, uh, in the middle in the 18th century, uh, they were living in the ghetto in Frankfurt, and they were not a particularly distinguished family, uh, but uh, they were okay. They were kind of like relative to other Jewish families. They were more or less middle class, and they had famously a red shield outside their front door. So uh, Mayor Ansem Rothschild really comes to uh, prominence when he goes into coin collecting. I mean, really, it's quite remarkable. Um, he was first brought in to advise royal families, I mean, actually, his father was already doing this, on their coin collections. But as a result of these contacts, some of these noble families came to realise that this young man didn't just understand coins, he was actually really understood stuff about money and about investments. And so they would start siphoning off investments for him to handle and would be guided by his advice on what they should do. By the time you get to the end of the 18th century, towards the end of the 18th century, Europe, this entire thing, is in turmoil because of the French Revolution. Make no mistake, the French Revolution was deeply frightening to all of the noble houses across Europe. If they could do this, if they could do this to Louis and Marie Antoinette, if they could do this to the French royal family, and they could do it to anyone, forget enlightened despotism, you can't control a mob running around killing everyone in the name of enlightenment. And during the course of all of those, I remember that Napoleon was at war with everybody, right? Not just the British, who eventually defeated him, but he was at war with the Austrians, at war with the Prussians, at war with this, at war with that, because everybody was freaking out. So a lot of these noble houses gave Rothschild their fortune <coughs> to look after during these upheavals. Some of these noble houses even had to go into exile. And Rothschild managed not only to preserve their fortunes, but invested them in ways that made them and himself a lot of money. Ultimately, the story is well known.
by the time the Napoleonic Wars are more or less over, I mean, Anson, Mayor, Mayor Anson Rothschild himself dies in 1812, but uh, certainly after 1806 and then beyond once his sons, remember the five sons of the famous Rothschild household, each one sent to a different city so that they can establish a completely self-contained banking empire that is completely uh, solid with themselves, you know, one in London, one in Vienna, one in Paris and so on. By the time you get after the Napoleonic Wars and the Rothschilds have backed both sides of the Napoleonic Wars in terms of financing and arms and so on, they emerge, they emerge as the wealthiest private family in the world. In the world. Nathan Rothschild, who's living in London, is Bill Gates on crack. He is single-handedly supporting the British government in gold. Why do you think that the price of gold is decided at the offices of Rothschild and has been for the last 150 years? Because Nathan Rothschild saved the British government several times. They are the, f the, the richest people in the world. Now, <laughs> you look at that and we go, oh, well, that's, we're very proud of that. That's very good. That's lots of nachas. They're very proud. Oh, Jewish is a Jew becomes all. And we forget how unbelievable that is. Rothschilds did in finance what Mendelssohn did in philosophy in many ways, but even beyond that a Jew from the Frankfurt ghetto is whining and dining with kings. And remember that as the 19th century is going to progress, the Rothschilds are given noble status. So it's like de Rothschild, Baron de Rothschild. And this is astonishing to many, many Jews, not just Gentiles, but Jews. But it's all part of the process. We are not yet at emancipation. We are moving towards emancipation, but we have isolated incidents of Jews who are becoming, apart through their own innate talent and brilliance, are becoming exemplars of what Jews can achieve. The story of emancipation is really a 19th, I'm just looking at the time, the story of emancipation is really a 19th century story. By the end of the 18th, we are still very much not in emancipation. Now, next week, I'm going to be leaving Europe because we have things going on elsewhere. <laughs> Jewish history, amazingly, is not confined to Europe. And there are things happening, not just... Uh, there are things happening in the Far East. And there are things happening in the New World of the Americas in Jewish history. And there are even things happening over here as we move towards the end of the 18th century. And some of the most incredible figures uh, of the 18th century are moving between those worlds. We've seen people moving between uh, one side of the Gefilte Fish Line to the other. But the guys who are moving, going from Palestine to the New World and to India and to China... They are the ones that are really, really expanding and opening up the dimensions and consciousness of the Jewish world of the 18th century. So thank you for listening to that tonight. What we've really covered is the parallel stories of the Gra and Moses Mendelssohn 
and to some extent Solomon Maimon bridging the gap. But that's the story of the 18th century. Jews are physically and intellectually on the move. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon. Thank you.